Well, I ask you to turn to Mark chapter 13, verse 8. We are, uh, uh, this church, uh, we go through verse by verse. Uh, we believe in, in this kind of expository preaching. And uh, it has been since the start of this church that we go through um, the Bible verse by verse. Uh, but as we have come to Mark 13, because of um, its uh, nature and how it speaks about the end times, we even slowed down all the more, and we're kind of going through it word by word. So we find ourselves today on Mark chapter 13 in, ver in verse 8. Uh, but um, in order to get a proper insight to what verse 8 is saying, we'll be reading from verse 5 to verse 8. So Mark 13, verse 5 to verse 8. And it says, And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and he will, misle and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things, these things must are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, to put this in the right and proper context, the disciples here ask Jesus about the sign of the end of the age. And then Jesus gave a clear and direct response. He didn't change the subject and told them about the sign preceding the destruction of the temple. And instead of telling them about the sign of the end of the age, nor was his answer confusing or ambiguous that the disciples had to spiritualize what Jesus was saying. No, Jesus answered their question and his answer was crystal clear and precise. And furthermore, he was perfectly consistent with both the Old Testament and the New Testament writings. And it is in relation to the end times. So far, we saw the first sign, and it was a great deception led by the Antichrist. The second, last week, it was a great dissension, worldwide wars and rumors of wars. And the third sign, and for today's message, it's great disasters, great disasters. And that is in verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. So in addition to the deceptions and the lies of the Antichrist, and as if the wickedness of man that will result into an ever increase of wars, along with the, all the bloodbath that this will come with, as if all that is not enough, now, Jesus predicts that there will be natural disasters that will strike the earth. And to keep in line with Jesus' analogy of labor pain, these disasters, these devastations that, that will increase in magnitudes, and that will increase in intensity and in frequency until they reach zenith unparalleled calamities unheard of in all human history. And as the whole world agonizes and at the verge of collapse, it will be our Christ who will put an end to all of the birth pangs by His second coming and ushering in His millennium kingdom. And we're going to study two points for today. The devastations. Now, what kind of devastations will there be? We want to study them in depth. And the second point, and it'll be really simple, we want to study the God of these devastations. We want to go even deeper and beyond just the, these devastations and the calamities and what they will cause 
in, our, in the lives of those people at the end times. But we want to go even further than that. And we want to study who that God is who's behind all of these devastations. We want to study the attributes of God in the light of the end times. So we start with the first one. The kinds of devastations that will strike the earth. And so we read and it says, it says earthquakes. Luke adds great, great earthquakes. And the second is famines. That's hunger, starvations. And then there is a third kind of devastation that Luke also adds, and that is plagues, diseases. Not these dodgy uh, viruses that uh, would leave uh, 99% of man- chance of survival. No, real epidemics of deadly diseases. So to put them all together, there will be great earthquakes, famines, plagues. We'll start with the first, great earthquakes. This word great is mega. Meaning there will be a powerful shift of the earth plate, a movement within the earth's crust. Volcanics will erupt. Volcanoes will erupt. There will be um, sudden, violent shaking beneath the ground and it will lead to great destructions that will follow immediately after. Now, you might say, well, big deal. It always happens. Every decade, we see a great earthquake that just rocks the whole entire earth. What's new? These great earthquakes, it says after it, in various places. And please note, these various places proceeds immediately after Jesus said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So these various places can only mean one thing. Worldwide global earthquakes that will rattle the whole earth. And it won't be just one earthquake, it will be great earthquakes, many in various places. Many great earthquakes will occur simultaneously. Think of the collateral damage this will cause. Tsunamis will be triggered. Buildings and horizons will come crashing down. The grounds beneath will crack open. Trees will fall. Museums, schools, universities will turn into rubble. Daily operations will come to a complete halt as people everywhere will be gripped by terror. But it's not just the earthquakes that will cause terror in the heart of men. There will be famines, hunger. People at that time will starve to death. Hunger will be in various places. Fruit and vegetable markets will only be for the super wealthy. Farms will turn into a hard clay. Shops will be emptied of food. The only thing that you're really going to be able to buy from Coles and Woolworth at that time are just toilet paper. There will be famines. But not just famines, plagues. What does it mean, plagues? Incurable epidemics of infectious diseases that will grind the medical world to a halt. Think about it. Hospitals at that time will be flooded with patients. Chemists will run out of medicines. Painkillers Penadine Fourth and all the rest of the other painkillers that we know of will have absolutely no effect. Migraines and intense, agonizing, relentless pain will be the norm. The end times will be a seven-year period that will be filled with agony and intense pain. And it will be packed with unimaginable, inconceivable devastations that will make the whole world 
feel like it's in the verge of collapse. The cursed earth will begin to disintegrate and men's hope will be crushed. Jeremiah calls this tribulation period time of distress. Isaiah, a day of vengeance. Zephaniah, a day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And many Christians, they don't like to believe that what Jesus predicted will come to pass. And they say, well, it just happened in the past. I want to tell you that Jesus' prediction, again, is consistent with the Old Testament and the New Testament writings. And to that end, I do want to ask you to turn to Ezekiel 38. We want to go just through one passage, one passage from the Old Testament before we move into our second point, and we want to see the God of this devastation. Before that, we want to read Ezekiel 38 from verses 19 onwards. And as Ezekiel here prophesies and takes his readers all the way to the end times, we read in verse 19, and here God is speaking, and he says, in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake. So there will be great earthquake in the land of Israel. Now, don't be mistaken. This earthquake will not be just limited to Israel. How do we know that? We'll continue reading in verse 20. And it says, The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. That's an earthquake. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground at the end there will be earthquakes so great that all living creatures everywhere will feel it and the whole world will collapse like a, a house of cards verse 21 Yahweh is continuing on and he's saying I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains declares the Lord Yahweh. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Meaning, if you recall last week's sermon, um, there will be at that great day, just before Jesus burst out of the, into the scene, out of the sky, all nations will be gathered to war, to make war against Jesus himself and his people. And what God is saying here is that just before Jesus comes out of the sky and slaughter mankind, just before that, and because of the grayness of this earthquake, man will be so confused that he will turn against man. And as it says there, every man's sword will be against his brother. That's the earthquake. What about the plagues? And the pestilence, verse 22, with pestilence, that's the plagues, that means diseases and all the rest of it, and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. Wow. Ezekiel is consistent with what Jesus said as to what's going to happen at the end times. But then we see something amazing, something wonderful. And we do want to read the next verse because this verse is going to be the hook um, by which we want to attach the second point of today's message. In the midst of all of this thick gloom and dark uh, time, God's glory will shine ever bright. We read this in verse 23. And God is saying here, I will 
magnify myself sanctify myself and make myself what known in the sight of many nations and they will know that i am yahweh god said that these devastations will thunder aloud to the whole world who god really is and god's majesty will sound forth and through famines earthquakes plagues it is like someone flicked the light switch on and the blazing glory of god will be unveiled and as we are about to see shortly both when god's attributes who god really is is on display it will cause both comforting to his people and yet dreadful terrifying horror in the heart of the unbelievers now just what attributes of god will these calamities show what is it that we would know about god in the light of these events that will take place at the end times and for that we want to look at the end time events in revelation again this week and we want to be intentional about it we want to scan with our eyes the pages of the scripture and drink with our hearts what these events will tell us about god so we come to the second point now the god of these devastations the god of devastation and we turn to uh, revelation chapter 6 now again that book of revelation from 6 to 19 it's filled with these kind of devastations and we go to revelation chapter 6 we start with there from there and we want to extract from revelation 6 as we would study these plagues these calamities we want to know what attributes of god will be made known to those people at that time and will be known to us today as we study these events revelation 6 again just a quick background the first seal speaks of the coming of the antichrist the second seal wars and rumors of wars now we turn to revelation 6 verse 5 and we look at famines the third seal is about famines and just to give you a hint as we study this we will find that it speaks loudly about the sovereignty of our god let's let's read verse 5 when he broke the third seal so that's the third seal i heard the third living creature saying <clears throat> come i looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand he had scales in his hand now why is he carrying scales in his hand what's he weighing verse 6 and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat. So he's weighing food here. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now a quart of wheat, um, this is about uh, uh, um, an average person's need um, daily intake. Um, so that's, that's how much a person would eat per day, a quart of wheat. And uh, if you uh, do the maths, I did the maths, and I kind of worked it out, and it's equivalent to one Big Mac, right? And it says here, for a denarius, a denarius is a one day's wage. So you work for a day, and all you can afford to buy is one burger. Now, you might say, well, that's cool. What's wrong with that? I wouldn't mind eating a burger every day. But families, you're going to need to, you got to understand is families at that time relied on one single income. 
And when you have parents, and on average, maybe about 12 children, what do you have? You have 14 people all feast on one burger. Then what do you have? You have famine. And when you have famine, what does it lead to? It leads to death. And that's exactly what we read on the fourth seal. The fourth seal is about death. Read verse 8. I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following him with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. That's a quarter of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with what? With pestilence. People will be hungry for food. But they will be filled with plagues and diseases. They will look for food, but the only thing that they will find is pestilence and death. Now, this is not the only place where we find famines and pestilence. It will only going to increase from that point onwards in intensity and frequency. So the first trumpet, after the seals are finished, the first trumpet a third of the trees on the earth and all the grass will be burnt up. Can you imagine the devastations, the collateral damage on the vegetations at that time? It's crazy. Now you might say, well, okay, that's all right. I'll, I'll eat fish. I'm going to go fishing and eat seafood. The second trumpet, a third of the fish will die. And a third trumpet the third of fresh water will be poisoned. Now, I would like you to have a look at the fifth trumpet. And we want to focus now on the diseases, the pestilence, the plagues that will be haunting men at that time. The fifth trumpet, that's Revelation 9. And we'll be reading from verse 2. Devastation after another, after another, and just increasing in intensity and in frequency. Now we read in verse 2 of Revelation 9, and says, He, that's Satan, he opened a bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So whatever came out of the pit, it looked like almost like, a, like smoke. And it was so thick that it darkened the sun. That it was not smoke. It was like smoke. And if it wasn't smoke, what was it? He tells us in verse 3. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. So Satan will be given a green light to release ugly looking locusts. You can read in your own time. And he's going to release them out of the pit of hell. And they're going to be so numerous that they will cover the sun and they will turn the entire sky into a blackboard. Are these locusts? They're not going to be like uh, the normal locusts that you see as you read in Revelation. You're going to find them. They're just specifically prepared for this day. And then you continue reading. It says, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And verse 4, they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth. Of course, they can't hurt the grass. It's all burnt up. Nor any green, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So God is going to be very specific as what they're going to hurt. And who are they going to hurt? And verse 5, and they are not going to be permitted to kill anyone, but to torment Four, five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Ouch. No one will die, but they will be tormented for five days. Now, how painful that torment be? Verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. Everybody wants to be a suicide at that time. And they will long to die and death flees from them. They want to kill themselves, but they won't be able to. This pain will feel like hell. 
And he speaks of the sovereignty of God. You know, you, one might ask, where is God in all of this? Is he sleeping? How is God standing still and not doing anything about it? I mean, how come he didn't bring an end to all of these calamities? You know, some Christians, they have such a low view of God. And they kind of feel embarrassed because of God's quote-unquote lack of involvement during that time. And I kind of try to justify God's position, you know, by saying, oh, well, this is kind of man's doing to himself. And it's kind of like the circumstances of life. You know, poor God, if he could do anything about it, surely he would have done something. But, you know, all he could do is just to be sad while watching these famines and pestilence unfolding and causing man to suffer. Poor God. He's got his hands tied behind his back. Oh, well. And they think that by saying that, they're kind of covering God's nakedness, you know, covering God's shame. He's not involved in his creation. God is sovereign. Where is God in all of this? Where? On his throne. Reigning sovereignly, supremely, all over the affairs of this world. Please note who opened the seals. It was the Lamb of God that opened the seals. And it was the Lamb of God that gave the trumpets to the angels. Back in Revelation 8, 6, 8, what we just read, it says this, underline it. Highlight it. It says this authority was given to death and haters. It was granted to them. Who granted authority to kill and to destroy other than our glorious Jesus himself who possesses all authority? And when he drew a line on the sand and limited their authority to a quarter of the earth, what pathetic creature would dare to defy God's authority or step out of it? Again, back in Revelation 9.3, underline it. Highlight these words. It says, power was given to the locusts. Power was given. Where did they get this power from other than the one who is the source and the fountain of all power? The devil's power is a borrowed power. The locust's power is a borrowed power. It is our majestic Jesus that lends his power. And even when he does, he never runs out. It never diminishes. He always has infinite supply of power, might, and strength. We must know this. We must know that no disease, nor famine, no matter how deadly they may be, no disease, no famine that will not submit to Jesus' authority. End times is not a sign of the absence of God. It's the very evidence of his presence. God is sovereign. Meaning there is no evil power that comes into existence without his permission. Even when the Antichrist will whistle to bring all the nations in, the, in that war in this Armageddon. Ezekiel 38 verse 8 says that it is Yahweh himself that will summon this Antichrist to be there. And Zechariah 14.2, it is Yahweh that will gather all the nations to be there too. The devil and the demons. Diseases and death. If all of these plus all the wicked men of the whole world, if you put them all together in one side, and if they all team up 
to oppose the sovereignty of God, there will be no more than a, a limping cockroach with arthritis. In the sight of this mighty, sovereign, matchless, powerful God. End times is when God flexes his sovereign muscle for the whole world to see who really is in charge of the world. Through famines and pestilence, God will magnify himself. Not only will the sovereignty of God flash before all like lightning in the sky, but there's another attribute of God that the end times will show about God. And it is the wrath of God. God's wrath will thunder. It will rumble. And it will rattle the whole earth. Now the church is already raptured before then, and all that is left on the earth, unbelievers going around deceived and being deceiving and, and deceiving others. Sin will be rampant, and people everywhere will indulge in wickedness like we've never seen before. It will be a global lawlessness. And God will look at that, and he will strike the earth with his wrath. So we go now to Revelation 12. And what we're going to see in Revelation 12, from Revelation 12 onwards, is that God will magnify himself. Through earthquakes, the world will know that God is a wrathful God. Revelation 6, 12. This is the sixth seal. And it says, when he broke the sixth seal, there was what? A great earthquake. Now, just how great this earth earthquake will be, it will tell us immediately after it that the sun will become black, the moon will become uh, like blood, and the stars of the sky will fall. I mean, can you just imagine the inconceivable calamities in this time? The, the, the tectonic plates in the depth of the earth will crack open, all together at once, and they will shoot forth ashes that will darken the sun. Crazy. And then the Bible says it'll be like you're having a, a fig tree and a strong wind, or when you bring that fig tree and you begin to shake it really hard, then all the figs will begin to tremble to, 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 tremble to the ground. It'll be just like that when God shakes the heaven and all the stars will begin to fall into the earth. Mountains and islands will move out of their places. It's like the whole earth will become like a big, large washing machine, and you're in it, and then God will press the on button. And the whole world will be upside down. Now, verse 15, the people will be so terrified at that time. It says in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains. Rocks of the mountains. So there's going to be havoc. Everyone's going to be freaking out. Everyone will be running for a cover. And what are they covering? What are they hiding from? Verse 16. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From what? From the presence of him who sits on the throne. They want to hide from God. Why? And from the wrath of the Lamb. They're not hiding from the earthquakes. They're hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. They're going to be so terrified of the wrath of God that they want to be buried alive. The earthquake will display the wrath of God to mankind at that time. 
in verse 17, again it says, The great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand it? God's hot anger burning against the Christ-rejecting world will be poured out during this time. During a tribulation period, the wickedness of man will cross path the righteousness of God. And God's holy indignation will be felt by sinners everywhere. See, what is God's wrath? God's wrath. His deep, settled hatred towards evil. His self-willed determination to punish wicked people who rise up to oppose him. And that wrath that they're going to experience at that time, it's only going to be a preview of what hell is going to be like. It's only a glimpse, a preview of hell. So think about it. Let's put it all together. You have famines and plagues that will be breathing death. And everyone will be frantically running around and trying to hide into caves, these dark caves. And so during that time, man will be deprived of all good things that they set their hearts upon in this world. All their leisures will be out of their reach. The covetous man at that time won't be able to enjoy his possessions. No meat or drink there to strengthen the weak. Health of body, peace of mind will be something of the past. No sleep to refresh the weary. No music to cheer up the miserable. And they will be left in darkness of the caves, drowning in the floods of their sorrow. Hope will fly away. Depression will grip them. Horror and despair will be their companions. Pain in body. Anguish of the soul. And every breath they will take, it will remind them that they are the object of God's hot displeasure. As God's wrath will burn against them it will be inconceivable misery tribulation is a preview it's only a glimpse of what hell is going to be like aren't you glad that the church is going to be raptured before this time aren't you glad that it says in the scripture that we are not destined for wrath we should be grateful church and be thankful that god is merciful upon us God's wrath will be on display during that time. And like God said in Ezekiel, as we read earlier, I will magnify myself. I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know, they will know that I'm Yahweh. They will know how fearful it is to fall in the hands of a sovereign, wrathful God. But it's not just God's wrath that will be displayed in the end times. Believe it or not, it's his mercy. As he gives man another chance to repent and believe. It's God's mercy. And I want to conclude with God's mercy. What a beautiful ending, right? We'll conclude how God's mercy is definitely on display at that time. God is a merciful God. Let us never forget this. He is such a compassionate God, especially to his people. He's a tender-hearted God. That though his people would drink sin like water, but God will show them his unconditional love. And he will display his great mercy in the way he will save them. Because he will save them freely. So now we come to Revelation 11, because through the earthquake that we will study now in Revelation 11, verse 13, we will see God's mercy in action. Revelation 11, verse 13, and it says, In that hour, 
there was a great earthquake. And the tenth of the city fell. So it's going to be a gigantic earthquake. And this city here is Jerusalem. It will rock Jerusalem. So here we're talking about the nation of Israel. Now, how gigantic is this earthquake? It tells us that 7,000 people were killed in this earthquake, and the rest were terrified. So again, people perished, and others were in panic. They were in havoc. They were, there was terror everywhere. And look at what this terror will lead them to. And gave glory to the God of heaven. This is another way of saying that they were saved. So these people whose lives are spared, they were terrified and then they were saved. God in his mercy sent an earthquake to wake them up, so to save them. God, because of his mercy, he rattled the ground. Buildings jolted. Bridges collapsed. Pipes burst. But to what end? To save his people. God does love his own people. He loves them to the end. He loves them with an everlasting love. And the Bible tells us that he loves them without a cause. You see, I want to show you something beautiful, and we want to end with that. In this white space between terrified and, and gave glory to the God of heaven, in this white space, just a simple white space there, there was that fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. I want to read this verse, and this will be the last verse, I promise you, that we'll be reading for today. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 and God is saying here, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So let me, let me put it in, in a chronological order for you. What you have here is that sinners, then God shakes the ground, people perish, but those who were elect and not yet saved, their lives were spared. And while they were terrified, God will pour out His Spirit. Now, why would He do that? It says, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. So they would look upon Christ. So what that means then, that in their spiritual dark condition of their own hearts, in their own depravity. While they can do nothing but rebel against Christ, just like their forefathers did, they will hate Christ. And yet God, because of His great mercy, He will pour His Spirit upon them. Yes, they are sinners. Yes, they deserve not just a preview of hell, but all of hell itself. And there is nothing good in them that would make them so lovable. But it is our merciful God that loves freely. And He will pour out His Spirit upon them. He will open their eyes and they will see the magnificence of Christ. And it says there, and they will mourn for Him. As one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Their terror will turn into mourning for Christ. And they will weep so badly as it were a national funeral. And they might say something like this. They might say, oh Christ, how we rebelled against you. Jesus, in your love you came to offer us abundant life, but we hated you and we chose death. 
In your mercy, you came to offer us free salvation, free forgiveness of sin. But our wickedness of our own heart, it was so hardened. And we chose damnation over our salvation. How is it that the very source of mercy and love is in pursuit of us, and yet we gave him our back? We chased after an evil world that is collapsing all around us. Remember, it started off with Christ, God himself pouring his spirit, and then they will be able to see Christ on the cross, him that, that whom they pierced. They will see the redemption, the love of Christ on display on that cross, the magnificence and the glory of Christ. Their eyes will be open to that. And they would say, how can it be? How can it be that we forsook Christ, who is the fountain of living waters, the only one who is able to quench the 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 thirst of our souls because we chose to drink the pleasures of our sin. How could it be that we rejected Christ, the bread of life, the only one that could satisfy the aching of our hearts? And the text says they will mourn for him. They will mourn. I believe they will weep over their sin so bitterly to the point that their knees will lose strength and they will kneel before the king of redemption and they will say to Christ, we confess we have abandoned you for pig's food. We took advantage of your patience and we rebelled against you. And in our rebellion, our hands are stained with your blood. The spear that struck you is in our hands. God, if you end our lives now and cast us into this pit of hell, you will be just and we will get what we deserve. But Christ, you're so merciful. Our eyes are now open. We can see your mercy. You send this earthquake so that to wake us up from our spiritual sleep. Would you have mercy on us? Would you save us? We beg you, redeem us, cleanse us, heal us. And the prophecy says that Jesus will answer their prayer. He will. He will answer the cry of their hearts. Not because they're good people. No. But because he's a merciful savior. He's been merciful all along. He was merciful when he spared their lives. He was merciful when he was patient with them. He was merciful in pursuing them. And then he will be merciful in saving them. And when all the redeemed will look back in time, and though they were terrified of the wrath of the Lamb, when they look back in time and see the thoughts of God all along, they will conclude that all of God's thoughts for them was mercy, mercy, mercy. He will save them. And when he does save them, he will magnify himself. And they will know that he is Yahweh. What does it mean they will know that he is Yahweh? It means they will know that he is sovereign, almighty, all-powerful. And they will know that he hates sin and sinners. He is wrathful. But they will also know that he is so merciful that though they deserve 
hell and death and all the curses in the scripture because they defied God's authority and they wanted to oppose him and resist him. Yet, he moved with pity towards them and he saved his people unconditionally and freely. Not because they were good people. No. They were the worst. In their hands was their own with their spear that pierced Christ. They're the worst kind of people, and yet God saved them because of his mercy. That's what it means. He saved them unconditionally. And he saved them freely. What that means is that they didn't need to do one little thing for God to move with mercy and to save them. They didn't need to go get baptized. They didn't need to cross rivers, swim across oceans to get saved. God saved them freely. They just cried out to him, called upon him, and he saved them. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, you are so magnificent. You are so glorious. The scripture is a testimony of your sovereignty, of your wrath, of your mercy. Even end times is your time, Lord. And it is your time to shine all the more and to show how great you are, how magnificent you are, how glorious you are. And we pray, Lord, that you would Protect these words in our hearts from the evil one to snatch them away. And we pray, Father, that even now, Lord, save your elect. Save those people whom you have chosen before the foundation of the earth. God, We don't need to go through tribulation time and experience such agonizing time so that we would wake up. Your word is truth and all we need, Lord, right now is for your spirit to be poured upon those unbelievers among us and they will, their eyes will be open and they too will mourn for him. Would you, Lord, pour out your spirit Cause the elect to be saved even today, Lord. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.